I want to introduce you to a bunch of people who you've never met, but I presume you can relate to their story and their struggle. It's Max. Max became a Christian later in life, and when he did, he did a complete 180 of his life. It completely transformed his life in meeting Jesus. And everyone noticed. I mean, almost overnight, the drinking stopped, the gambling stopped. But there was one area of life that didn't. That was his anger. He was a man who had a quick fuse. He would blow up at the smallest thing, someone cutting him in while driving. His kids did something he didn't like. He would blow up in anger. He tried to work on his anger year after year after year to control it. But in reality, his anger was controlling him. He tried and tried and tried as a verge of giving up. There's Janine. Janine loves shopping. I mean, really loves shopping. There's nothing more than she enjoys than scrolling through Instagram or shops online and seeing those words sale or half price. But what gives her greatest of all joy is seeing that package of that delivery at the front door. That, whew, she loves that. She used to get a thrill out of serving at a local homeless shelter or having people over to her home, but it doesn't compare to the thrill of that shop and that purchase and that receiving. She knows as the money goes out, she knows as her time is sucked up by this, she shouldn't do it, she should spend more time what she used to do, but she's not sure whether it's worth it anymore. There's Jamal. Jamal, from as long as he can remember, had an addiction to pornography. For year after year, he spent hours consuming pornography, one after the online. He thought getting married would fix it. It didn't. He's tried everything in his life to try and deal with this addiction, but he's finding there's no success. Nothing's happening. He feels like he was the same man he was 10, 20 years ago. And so he's just living this double life. There's Helen. Helen is a good girl. That's what her non-Christian friends would say. You're a good girl, Helen, right? And she was, you know. She was well-behaved. She was kind. She was generous. She was loving. But her friend did something that caused a profound hurt, and resentment was growing in her. This resentment was growing and growing. We're so much so that she would delight in seeing her friend fail. And notice that she enjoyed telling other friends half-truths about that friend and even a lie. She knows she doesn't want to, but she can't shake this resentment that's there. Four people. Four people. Max, Janine, Jamal, Helen. Different people, different struggles, but all have one thing in common. They all want to change. They all want to change, but they're on the verge of giving up and giving in. It's like they're in an elevator that's stuck. That's not, the doors aren't opening. They're jumping. They're pressing the buttons, but they're stuck. Now, you may have never, you've never met these people, but I presume at least one of those you can resonate with. 
where there's an area in your life where you've been working or you want to change, you know you shouldn't change. Other people say you should change. But the reality is you're asking, is there really real hope for change in my life when it comes to this area? If that's you, Titus is the book for you. It is one of the smallest books in the Bible in the New Testament, and yet do not let size fool you. It packs a punch, right? Titus is a book all about change, a deep, real, profound change, a change from doing what is harmful, what is unhealthy, what dishonours God and dishonours other people, to a change to doing what is good, what the good God wants you to do, to live a life that is good and pleasing. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. It's a book, Titus is a book about what addresses the things that stop us, the blockages from wanting to change. It unpacks the motivation, the real motivation to change, and that we need to do it not in isolation but in community. As we enter this series, for the Christians in the room, and that's most of us, this is going to be confronting a book. But it's only going to be confronting if we're honest. For the Holy Spirit wants to enter in that space because when you enter in the space of honesty, and realness, there you will find a goodness in what God wants for your life. For those who are not Christian, as you journey with us for the next eight weeks, you're going to see what is it that brings about change in a Christian's life. Because there's something here that you will not find in any secular book on the bookshelves of Dimmicks. So today we start. Now we're just going to look at the first four verses of this book, right? First four verses of Titus chapter 1. And we're just going to look at two things. We're going to see how Paul, who wrote Titus, is a changed man and the foundation, the, the foundation of hope that anyone needs to have in order to change the first step. So Wingsy is going to bring us those four verses. Grab out your Bible. Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you're in your workplace, you've had the experience perhaps this week where part of professional development, development, they bring in the motivational speaker, you know, the expert who comes to talk to you about your work-life balance, goal setting, leadership development, developing your full potential. Has anyone had this? Yeah? If you haven't, chances are you're listening to podcasts and there you'll find people being interviewed all the time of someone giving you advice about relationships, about parenting, about finance, all these things. And the way in which all these people are introduced is the same cookie-cutter way. It goes like this. Let me introduce you to so-and-so, the author, a coach, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, nation's number one leader, author of best-selling books, number, a couple on the New York Times bestseller. They've spoken to millions around the world, world leaders, businessmen, politicians, actors, and they've changed lives. And as I hear these things, I cannot help but feel overwhelmed. Can you? I mean, what have I done with my life? I mean, these are very impressive people. Have you noticed how Paul introduces himself in this letter for Titus? He says this, 
call a servant. A servant. I mean, he's been a Christian by this age, about 30 years. Paul could have kicked off with this. Paul, the one who established the biggest church-playing network in the Mediterranean, author of best-selling books like Romans and Ephesians, <laughs> creator of great quotes for Instagram and Christian mugs like love is patient. You know, he could have done all those things. But it says, Paul, servant. Imagine if we went to see Simon Sinek or Brene Brown. They said, welcome, uh, uh, Brene Brown, a servant. You know, it just wouldn't happen. And yet here Paul is saying, I'm a servant. Now, he doesn't need a good publicist or better self-esteem because how you introduce yourself, friends, tells you a lot about someone, tells you what is important. And Paul, what he wants you to know is that he is a changed man. There's a couple of things here of how indeed changed he is. But the first and foremost is servant. Now, if you've been around church for a while, that word servant, you eh, become familiar with, right? I want to make things a little bit uncomfortable. That word servant really can be translated slave. You know, Paul, a slave of God. That kind of word makes us a bit like, eh. I don't know if you know IGM, International Justice Mission. An organisation which is goal is to expose that slavery is happening around this world in more ways than we realise. It wasn't abolished and done and dusted with William Wilberforce. It is happening all around this world. I want to expose it and do something about it. God's in a very similar pursuit, but not so much just with the physical, but the spiritual reality that every single person around this world is in slavery. Slavery to sin. Bob Dylan, uh, for those under 30, he's a, a rock star. He wrote some songs. Uh, but Bob Dylan wrote this song, Serve Somebody, it's called. You're going to have to serve somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. He got, or Paul the Apostle got, with what God has been saying, that no one, no one is free. No one's neutral. Even if you've grown, born up and raised in a democratic, Western, wealthy, educated society, all of us have a profound addiction to sin. It is our master. And we obey it all the time. I mean, if you don't believe me, try this week not sinning not doing anything wrong, right? We give in all the time. Now, sometimes what we do is like to fool ourselves, think, no, no, I'm actually more free. And so we, we justify things. We say things like, you know, the, the, I'm not an alcoholic. I can do dry July. See, it's not a problem. We say things, well, I'm not greedy. I have a charity that I give to. I'm not racist. I have a black friend. You know, it's amazing how we do all these things to try and think, oh, no, no, it's not a problem. I'm fine. But Paul knows there are only two options in life. You're either serving sin or you're serving God. And the reality is anyone who is stuck in slavery needs someone else to free them. And Paul knows he has been freed by the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in Romans 6, I think it's on the screen, you have been set free from sin and become a slave to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Now, Paul knows that sin is still his enemy, but ain't his master. It doesn't call the shots. It doesn't condemn him. It doesn't rule him. He's a servant, a slave of God. But it's not the only word he uses to introduce himself. 
Notice servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle just basically means sent one. And he's sent by Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has always been a driven kind of guy, ambitious. How many of you had a chance to read his yearbook? I don't know if he had a yearbook at school, but he probably would say, Paul, you know, most likely to make the biggest splash in our year group, you know, an entrepreneur. That, that's, he was a very driven guy. And, you know, 40 years prior to Titus, if you sat him down and say, you know, Paul, what's your goal in life? What, what, what do you want to achieve? You know what he'd say? My goal in life, my mission, is to wipe out Christianity. That was his goal. That was what drove him. He wanted to crush and wipe out this Christian group that was growing. That was his mission. That's what woke him up in the morning. That's what gave him energy, right? That gave him fire in his belly. But as he's going along the journey, heading to, on the road to Damascus, there Jesus interrupted that journey and completely transformed his life where he went from trying to kill Christians to convert Christians. And what's his goal? Verse 2, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. His mission in life completely changed. But there's another part of this introduction that shows how indeed changed Paul is. It's his relationships. Verse 4, to Titus. Now, this book's called Titus, right? Titus was a guy, a couple of things to know about him, but one of the things to know about him, firstly, is he wasn't Jewish. He was Gentile. Paul was Jewish. And yet he, straight to Titus, who's not Jewish, who's going to plant a church in Crete, which ain't Jewish, it's in Greece, right? And yet, what does Paul call him? My true Son. Let's be clear, he ain't his son, right? There's no biological connection here. And yet he's giving Titus one of the most precious words, my true son. Now what's the connection? What what do they have in common? Notice it's in our common faith. It ain't DNA or personality types of United. No, no, no. It is faith. Just like every Jew just like every Gentile comes to Lord Jesus through faith. So these two, Paul and Titus, are united to Christ and united to each other through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two people who shouldn't be relating to one another have become family. You know what's interesting? Titus, when he received this letter, knew all this. I mean, this ain't new information for him, right? It's not just like, well, uh, he knew Paul was a servant and an apostle and the way he felt about it. it I mean, Titus came along with Paul in the third missionary journey that Paul went on. You know, he helped plant the Corinthian church. You read in 2 Corinthians 8, there's Titus setting up a sort of a fundraiser event to help the poor. They've worked, each other for, worked with each other for a long time. So why is Paul saying all this stuff. I mean, it's one of the longest introductions to a letter in Paul's writings. I think Paul was reminding Titus of who he was, but more so than this, he was reminding himself of who he truly was. That master was not sin but God. That his purpose in life is not what he wants but the Lord Jesus. 
that his relationships are completely different. Because the longer you follow the Lord Jesus, the easier it is to take things for granted and just think they're normal. A couple of weeks ago, I got back um, from an overseas trip visiting my parents in Dubai. And uh, Dubai is one of those, well, it's hard to explain kind of places. It's sort of this massive city that just sort of popped up overnight. You know, it goes really against what Jesus said, where he says, do not build your house upon the sand. Dubai has done that. They just build a city on the sand. And uh, what's interesting about the history of Dubai, right, it's just really, and this is a very simple version of it, but it's sort of just many, many years of the Emiratians there, you know, fishing, living in houses, and it's like desert, 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 then boom, money, oil, and then boom, city, right? And it's sort of this city just popped up in the last 20, 30, 40 years, right? And it's amazing, but when you're there, you think, well, this is normal. Hasn't this always been like that? I mean, they're pretty big buildings, you know, the new roads, all this thing. It's so easy to think it is just normal, but you talk to someone who's been there for a long time and say, this has not always been the case. And friends, when it comes to your Christian walk, it is so easy to think this has always been the way. Particularly if you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's so easy to just assume that this is normal. You know one of the most dangerous things a Christian can do? Forget. That is why God calls these people again and again to remember. And that is what Paul is doing. He is reminding himself, he is remembering of who he is. The change in his life is a miracle. The relationships that he now has with the Lord Jesus are profoundly unnatural and yet beautiful. That his purpose in life is not what he wants but Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I, friends, the longer we are the Christian, the more we need to remember and remind ourselves of who we are. That's the first thing. The second thing, the foundation for change. You know, it's interesting, after motivational speakers are introduced, what I've noticed by listening to them and watching them, they generally do three things in their speech. I wonder if you can relate to this. Generally, they start off by saying this. They go into great detail about what is wrong with the world and what's wrong with you, right? They just say, these are all the problems. Here is the problems that you're doing, and they go on and on and on. The second thing they do is they tell you everything that they're doing right, right? They just say, I've done this, and my life has changed, my finances are good, my relationships are great, you know, it's just... And then what they do is they do the third thing, which is say, what you need to do now is these three steps. Do this, do this, do this, then your life will be amazing, just like mine. And then you go out. Now, whenever you listen to these things in a podcast or live, right, there are two responses all the time. The first is this. You try it. You listen and you do it. You implement it in your life. And what happens? It works. You get a little kick out of it. You go, oh, I implemented that change and there's a, bit, there's a win here. And then what do you do? You go around telling everyone else what's wrong with their life and how they need to change and do what you're doing, right? You become a little motivational speaker. But the other response is you try it, you give it a go, and you fail. It doesn't work. And you're just feeling guilty. I don't know if you know Marie Kondo, you know, tidying up with Marie Kondo, where you fold things and you order your sock drawer and it changes your life, that kind of thing. Recently, she said this, I've kind of given up on keeping the house tidy after having three kids. 
When I heard that, ooh, that sparked joy, I tell you. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's just something when you see someone who's do this, do this, and they don't do it because you know you're failing at it too. You know what the problem with modern hope is when it comes to change? It all rests on you. The hope lies within you. Do you have enough drive, energy? Are you determined? Are you focused? Are you self-disciplined? Do you have enough energy to quit, to stop doing what you shouldn't do, to give up what you shouldn't be doing? Do you you have enough drive to, to change? Are you good enough? Are you committed enough? It is all on you. Paul has a completely different approach. Hope for change in your life is not found within you at all. It is found completely in God. In other words, friend, you cannot change you. God can change you. You see that in verse 2. I mean, what is the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness? What is the foundation? What, what is the, the hope that Paul has? Verse 2, it is in the hope of himself, no, of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised from the beginning of time and which now, at his appointed season, has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. I mean, who's it very much work there? God. In fact, before time began, that was the case. And when time is done and dusted, that'll still be the case. There is no one more for your transformation, working for your good, that you would do good and experience good than the good God himself. There is no one who is able to bring about real long-lasting change, real long-lasting sanctification in your life than God himself. He has the ability. He has the power. He has the motivation. And what I love about this, it is a holistic approach. You notice there, promise before the beginning of time. You know, unlike the government which responds to unforeseen circumstances and bad events, God knows all. You just think about this. There was a conversation between the Godhead, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They say, you know, if we make people, make them in our image, they will reject us. They will turn to want sin and Satan to be their master and not us. You know, when we make them, it will cost us to save them. We make them, the change in their life will be instant and yet slow. And yet they say, you know what? We want to make them and make them an image, in our image. And when Adam and Eve took that fruit and disobeyed God, God became in the business of change, in renewing and restoring and redeeming. That happened before the beginning of time. And then there's the end. Notice there, in the hope of eternal life. That one day, friends, God's world and you and I will be what he always had intended to be. Very good. All of us have that sin in our life that we think will always be there. That will never change. But one day we're guaranteed it will. For those of us who have addictions and you cannot see the idea of being free from it, one day when you step into heaven through Lord Jesus Christ, you will be free of it. Anger will not burst out of you. It will be controlled. 
When you see someone who has more than you, you will be content. When you see someone who's beautiful, you will not lust. But your tongue will be perfectly controlled and all that will come out is good things. That is the hope of eternal life, where transformation will be complete. But you know, it's even right now. It's not just the beginning of the end. It is happening right now. God is for your change right now. You know, sometimes as Christians we tend to think, you know, God made me and that was all his doing. I had no part in that. God saved me. That was all Jesus. And, you know, I just I put my faith in him. And he did all that. But when it comes to sanctification, the, the change, it's kind of 50-50 with me and God. You know, it's almost like going for your L's. You know, God was with me for the first 100 hours in the seat. And the, but now I'm on my peace and I'm fine. I'm going independent. Wrong. God is 100% at work in the transformation of your life. It's not 50-50. It is 100%, right? And you see that in verse 3. Words like appointed season, brought to light, the command of our God. These are words saying one thing. You know when you're listening to a word and all of a sudden it just hits home and you come awaken of the goodness of God and how you want to step into that. That hasn't happened because all of a sudden you're more awake in a sermon than you were the other Sundays, right? That has happened by the command of the Saviour to open your eyes, to make you see and delight. That's his work in your life. You know when someone comes into your life, right? Maybe an older man or woman who's been following Jesus longer and has just been a blessing to help you work through some issues. Or you've stepped into a church and and has just been such a blessing to help you heal or help you grow in areas that you've been putting off. You know when that's that? That hasn't just happened by accident. God, in his appointed season, has brought that about. You know times when all of a sudden you feel like, that area in your life which you've locked off, all of a sudden you feel this, I need to unlock it. That sin that you've been hiding, you think that area of your life which I think is off limits to God, and you realize, I actually do need to deal with it. That is not because you're becoming more and more. That is because the Holy Spirit is working in your life, friends. It is all God's work because he is so for your change. He is so committed to your transformation. Where the Father, the Sovereign Father, knows before you need change and well after it, that my son, my daughter, needs to grow, needs to experience the good. That the son, the Lord Jesus, not only has given us good news in the death and his resurrection, but he wants us to experience the goodness of that, not just when we become a Christian, but every day of us following Jesus. That the spirit comes into us, enabling us to change, unlike Toys that kids get at Christmas where batteries aren't included. The Christian life comes with batteries. It's the Holy Spirit who gives you energy and drive and the ability to change. Without God, we would not be able to change. Not one bit. You've got more success pushing a river uphill or changing the course of the sun than reordering this thing. But God is the one who steps into your life and is so for your transformation. And you see that because of his son, Lord Jesus Christ. He died on that cross. The Holy Spirit came in. He is so for your renewal, friends. In our household, we quite like baking shows. And uh, one of our favourites is a show called Nailed It. And does anyone like Nailed It? There's a picture on the screen of what Nailed It is in two images. Nailed is where they get amazing cakes. Amazing cakes. And they get people who aren't really good at baking but love baking to try and make that cake. 
And the end result is that. It's great. I mean, these people, you know, they swap the salt and the sugar ratios. It just goes bad. They don't measure things so the cake comes out and it just whoop, gloops everywhere, right? People who love it, but they're, look, it's a mess. Then there's another baking show, The Great British Bake Off. That is where people come and they love baking, but they're very good at it. They're ready. They measure they make sure they're very methodical, and the end result is amazing cakes, delicious, mouth-watering things, and the end result for some of them, you're like, whoa, that is stunning. When it comes to those two shows, they are symbols for how we go approach life, maybe how you're feeling right now. Some of us, when it comes to our life, we look and it is, we, we try, but it is a mess. We are failing. We want to grow, but it has been failure after failure after failure. And it is not going anywhere good. Others of us have a confidence. We've had some wins. We're growing. It's been good. Other people have encouraged us. And it's sort of beginning this growth of like, actually, I'm going well as a Christian. I'm growing. I'm seeing change. Wherever you're at, whether you're in the Nailda category or the Great British Bake Off category, this truth, what Paul is saying, you need to hear. Because if you're in the British, Great British Bake Off category, right, and you think, I have changed, that's because God has enabled you to change. If you've seen growth, that is because the gardener has been at work in your life. If you have this confidence and excitement, this joy, that is a great thing to be praised, but the credit does not come to you and your commitment and your self-discipline. It becomes from the Lord God himself rests in that. But for those of us in the nailed category, where you feel like you're stuck, here's the hope. You may be stuck, but God is not. You may cannot see change, but God can. Your motivation may be waning, but God's ain't. You may feel powerless to change, but here's the good thing. God has and always has the power. I mean, why is Paul a changed man? He knows it has nothing to do with him at the end of the day. It is all God's work. And that gives him certain hope. Hope for himself. Hope as he speaks to Titus. I mean, Titus is looking at Crete, right? I mean, aesthetically, it's a beautiful place. But spiritually, I mean, what Crete say about themselves, we'll see that in a couple of weeks' time, they are lazy, liars, and evil. That's what they say about themselves. And so Titus is looking at, how am I going to plant this church? How am I going to grow these Christians, right? It seems hopeless. God, not Titus, can change them. When you look at those people in your life, maybe that boss, that neighbour, that adult child, whatever it is, will you worry and know that they need to grow and change their life? Rest in the fact that God can change them. It's not you. It's not ultimately going to be a psychologist. Okay, it is God the one who will ultimately bring about change in the people you know should change but don't at this present time. And then then there's you, you and I. We may have tried and tried and tried to deal with that sin. We may have tried and tried to grow in areas that we should grow in as Christians. But you may feel like you're giving up. Here's the hope, friends. Change is possible. 
but it does not come from you. The hope is this, Jesus is alive, his spirit is with you. And God does not lie. Now, I'm not saying for a second what some Christians say of let go and let God, right? I ain't saying that, right? We're only at the first four verses of this book. There's more to come. But, you know, there's a very important truth in the 12-step addiction recovery program that not only those who are addicts need to hear. You know what the first step is in the 12-step program? It has its foundation in Christianity. The first step is this, if you're in an addiction group. It's this. We need to admit we are powerless to change. Most people don't get beyond that step. It is a very hard step to do. I am powerless to change. Whether you have an addiction or not, every person needs to declare that we are powerless to change. The power does not come in here. But you know what the second step is? We've come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore. Where's that power? God himself. It's taking faith. It's coming to God that I cannot change, but you can. I do not have the power. You have the power. I do not have the motivation. You have the motivation. And whatever that thing in your life is, friends, whether it's anger, love of shopping, porn, resentment, or whatever it is for you, our natural defaults when dealing with these things is always do, do, do. What have we got to do? What steps are we going to take? What, what, what programs do I have to do? What fast we've got to pray? We've got to do all these things. And some of you will be disappointed with this talk because there's not much do, do, do. But the, most, the best thing that you can do, friends, when it comes to hope for change is doing those steps. I cannot change. I'm ultimately powerless. But coming to a God and saying, you can. I give this to you. I cannot change. I cannot bring about good in my life. But you are a good God who can. That is a truth that leads to godliness. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, you've given us life. All of us life. And through the Lord Jesus, you've given us eternal life. And by the power of the Spirit, you are renewing our life. That you made this world good, but because of our sin, we turned it bad. But you did not wash your hands, Lord God. We thank you that you are in the business of redeeming, restoring, renewing this world and indeed us. That left to our own, it would be a horrible ending. But because of you, Lord Jesus, what you did, that you are our saviour, that we have hope. That sin is no longer our boss, but you are. And we look forward to the day when sin has gone completely. We will live in a world where it is good and it is good. We look forward to that day. And in the meantime, Lord, we thank you that we are not alone in our pursuit of change, in our pursuit of doing good that you are with us and for us and at work in ways that we cannot even imagine. So we ask that we would rest in that, that the power to change is not in us, but it is in you.